This week on Q&A, Monica Norton, deputy local editor at the Washington Post, talks about James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk and the impact the book had on her as a teenager. Monica Norton of the Washington Post, you wrote a column back in December with the headline, I devoured James Baldwin's, quote, if Beale Street could talk when I was 13, it changed my life. Yes. How? Up until then, I, I mean, I was always an avid reader, and I have older brother, an older brother and two older sisters who were in college, and so I was reading their books when I was far too young. Uh, and we had a wonderful public library in my neighborhood where I spent pretty much every day after school going there and grabbing every book. And But there was something about Baldwin that was so raw and so passionate, and I think it also had to do with me being 13, where everything is passionate to you at that point. And here were these two young lovers, and I could really identify with them, and I could identify with the language and the beauty there's a movie out. When you wrote this column, you said in there you hadn't seen the movie. No, I had not. So you have you seen it now? I have. And it was, I was impressed. I was really moved by it. Uh, as I wrote in the piece, you know, I was probably too young to read Baldwin at 13. And Why, why are you saying that? You know, I didn't understand then that this was not simply a love story. There's a great deal of love in there. There's familial love. There's romantic love. But I didn't really register, I don't think I did at 13, you know, this, the broader subjects of mass incarceration um, and how that impacts a family, a community, a society. And so when I... I reread the book in advance of the movie coming out, and it was, you know, it's, it's been a long time since I was 13, so it was a whole different experience. And then seeing it on screen, it was as beautiful as I remember and as heartbreaking as I would subsequently learn after rereading the book as an adult. So, What's the story of Beale Street could talk about? I think it's the story of America in a lot of ways in that... You have these two young people who are working class, trying to make a go of it in a society that doesn't often recognize their value. Uh, the main, one of the main characters, Fani, is uh, wrongly charged with rape and incarcerated, and the entire family is working to get him out of jail. And we still see that happening in so many cases that today. And what it means to be incarcerated for the entire family and for a society and for a neighborhood. So, I just want to <laughs> run some video. It's about a minute of James Baldwin. It's back from 1960 in a CBC interview, just so everybody can see him and hear him talk. They got to go to school after Booker T. Washington in 1895. He was the architect, really, of the seventh but equal principle. Said, in effect, said exactly that uh, education will not make us different. Education will not make us will not give us any desire to become equal to you. That in all things um, social, we can be as separate as the fingers, and all things essential and mutual progress, we can be as one as the hand. Now, this idea was accepted by the nation, not only by the South, but the South refused to provide the Negroes with the kind of educational facilities that the North more or less made available to them. No, no this is not true either. I'm afraid that is not the way it happened. That is not the way it happened. 
what happened, the Negro education began, and really began in the South, and is still very largely located there. There are Negro universities in the South. There are very few Negro universities in the North, because the North is technically not segregated. I think the first thing you notice is smoking. Yes. <laughs> Everyone and, smoked then. And the so. second thing you notice <clears throat> is the word Negro. Yes. When you were growing up, what what was that? The you know I grew up you know my as I said I have an older brother and two older sisters and they were in college about the time I was in elementary school, and it was the era of black is beautiful. You know I remember you know them playing you know a forty five which I'm sure a lot of people don't even know what that is today, <laughs> um, but playing James Brown singing you know say it loud I'm black and I'm proud you know that was the terminology I grew up with. The exception was that in my parents were a little bit older, well, they would be considered average now, but when I was born, my father was 45, my mother was 36. They're, they were both from South Carolina, very segregated society. My father was born right during the Depression and had really hardships. So I know the evolution of terms that were used to describe black people because he told me them from his own life and what they meant to him and how they impacted him. So, you know, watching that video, you see sort of the evolution of where we are today. But, you know, I was black. <laughs> I was, you know, that, that was the terminology that was used, you know, so. How much of James Baldwin, and he wrote the novel that we're talking about in 1974, yes. or that's when it was released. And I've got a whole list. It started in 1948, and his last one, I think, was 1985. How much did you read of him? Oh, I, uh, you know, I as I said, when I devoured that, then I started on my education of James Baldwin. And I think, I'm not certain of the exact order, but I think Another Country was sort of the second book, and in a lot of ways was one of my, my, one of my favorites that I've read of his. And Giovanni's Room, and his essays, The Fire Next Time, and uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, I think I read twice. <laughs> you know, I think one was for an assignment in college, and one was just, you know, again, I wanted to read about this. And, and just all of any essay I could find, anything I could find of his, you know, I'm excited now because they're releasing a children's book that he wrote for his, uh, I think it was his nephew that is going to be released. I don't think it had ever been released before. And I'll grab a copy of that as well. So what would you say? Uh, and you talk about you love words. Yes. What would you say is the theme of Baldwin's writing? I think his writing really does deal with love whether it's universal love, loving oneself, love between people and and society. I really think that that is sort of the overarching theme. I think a lot of people probably see him because he was so passionate in fighting for the rights of African Americans that sometimes I think that people mistake that for anger and I don't think I think he was not angry but forceful in his denunciation of racism. And I think, you know, and I don't have a problem with being angry because there are lots of things to be angry about. But I think that it was his passion because of his love for his people that that and that comes across in, you know, all of his interviews and all of his writing. He was born in 1924 and he died yes. in 1987. Yes. What's the story of you going to see him? <laughs> So in 1987, I had just started working. I was a young reporter for the Evening Sun. Baltimore. At, in Baltimore. And he was speaking, I think it was, I'm not sure what the, I think because the name has changed. I think it was the Baltimore City Community College or something of that nature. 
And so I was so excited by this. And it was during winter, and I was planning to leave work and head across town. And, you know, my family, I was still living at home. My family lived in eastern Baltimore County, and this was in West Baltimore where he was speaking. And I vaguely remember a close childhood friend calling me up and saying, you know, it's snowing. You should try and get home. And I said, oh, it's fine. It's, I've got something to do, you know. And so I packed up my little paperbacks that I had of my James Baldwin books, and I had them in the car beside me. And the car was a 1978 Fiat Spider that I had purchased from my older, one of my older sisters. It was, I think, probably, you know, almost a decade old when I purchased it from her. And it had rear-wheel drive. And if you know anything about a rear-wheel drive car, they do not function well in snow. <laughs> so, but I was determined, and I got in, and I was trudging along, and I should say I was inching along because the snow was coming down. And I got to a point where I was probably 15, maybe 20 minutes away from where he was speaking. And it shouldn't have, it normally would have taken all of 20 minutes to get there, but it was just so slow going through the snow. And I started sliding. And I started sliding towards his telephone pole. And I just stopped really short of it. And I said, you just got to go home. You cannot do this. This is ridiculous. This is insane. You must go home. And I turned around. And I think uh, a couple days later, I was at work. And there was a reporter there. And he made it there. He lived not far from there. And I remember him going on and on about, oh, there were only about five or six of us who showed up, and he just held court, and because nobody could leave, we just had a great time, and he told stories, and I was already heartbroken. And then several months later, he passed away. <laughs> and so it was my lesson there. Now, now if I, there's somebody I want to see, I find a way to see them. So Here he is in 1965 at the Cambridge Union Society, Cambridge, uh, England, and he's debating... Um, William F. Buckley, mm -hmm. a conservative, but you don't see him. Here is uh, James Baldwin. When the ex-attorney general, Mr. Robert Kennedy, said that it was conceivable that in 40 years in America we might have a Negro president. And that sounded like a very emancipated statement, I suppose, to white people. They were not in Harlem when this statement was first heard and did not hear and possibly will never hear the laughter and the bitterness and the scorn in which the statement was greeted. From the point of view of the man in the Harlem barbershop, Bobby Kennedy only got here yesterday. And now he's already on his way to the presidency. We've been here for 400 years and now he tells us that maybe in 40 years, if you're good, we may let you become president. <laughs> Bobby Kennedy missed it by a few years, yes. but mm -hmm. Barack Obama. Um, which, what are you seeing there? I, I see him calling out America for its hypocrisy, <laughs> you know, and I think that's what he tried to do in a lot of his works, you know, whether it was about sex or race or, you know, how the government functions, you know, I think that's what he was really sort of pointing, like, you know, how absurd is that, that, you know, 40 years from that point where you have, and it's not as if, you know, there weren't other qualified African-Americans before Barack Obama who could have been president. There have always been people who are more than qualified, you know, but the fact is that that wasn't seen as a role for African-Americans. And I think he was very pointedly saying, what do you mean by this? So, and I think that shows up in a lot of his work. So, What's your current job? 
I am the deputy local editor for the Washington Post, so I supervise, help supervise our coverage of the region. Um, it's a little bit broader than that now because we cover religion from around the country. Uh, you know, everything from the, we cover immigration, dealing with the around the country. So it's a bit broader, but we cover the region and the world a bit. So you talked about reading him when you were 13 years old. Yes. What evolved in your own head about? the whole race issue in your life as you kept reading him and got, getting older and getting into the work world? I think um, particularly, as I said, I'm not sure at 13 I was fully aware. I think it was sort of reading him over time that I began to recognize. I think reading him, I saw myself really for the first time. And it wasn't as if I hadn't read other works by black authors. But it was the first time that I really sort of said I could have been that, you know, 19-year-old Tish. You know, it wasn't I didn't live in Harlem. I didn't have those sort of circumstances, but I could see myself. And it was the first time I thought about really writing, you know, I mean, because I thought this was magnificent writing and that I was there. When he wrote a scene, I was there and I felt their pain and their aggravation and their love and their frustration in their lives. And I thought, this is what I would want to do. And I think uh, by reading him and by reading about black lives that were very similar to mine, that it made me aware of my role in America, writ large, so to speak, and my responsibilities. So. We need to take a look at the trailer for the movie. Uh, the movie came out in December, and you wrote about it then, and it's moved through January, February, won some Golden Globe uh, awards, and we're, when this is recorded, the Oscars haven't happened, so who yes. knows by the time this airs. But let's watch a little bit of the trailer okay. so people who have not seen If Beale Street Could Talk will uh, get a little bit of the flavor. Strumming my pain with his fingers You ready for this? Singing my life with his words I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life Killing me softly with his We are drinking to new life Tish gonna have Fonny's baby <laughs> I hope it's a boy We're gonna have a baby I'll have you out of here before this You sure about that? You're not by yourself. These are our children, and we gotta set them free. Gotta hold our baby in my arms. I'm with you. You trusted love this far. We see the kids. Those are the kids when they were mm -hmm. in the bathtub together. But yeah. um, when you saw the movie, how close was it to the uh, novel? Very similar. The ending is different because the book doesn't sort of, I don't want to give anything away for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the book doesn't sort of resolve what happens with Fani and the movie sort of takes it an additional step. But pretty much it sticks very closely to the book. Um, uh, remarkable that I remember certain words, certain phrases, certain dialogues that really do resonate that come pretty much straight from the book. So, What's happened to movies and uh, black actors in your lifetime? Uh, you know, I, as I was telling someone, I remember being a kid um, and I remember when Roots debuted on TV and I was in elementary school. 
And I remember it was appointment viewing for the entire world. It seemed like we had a, a scholastic, you know, the scholastic magazine used to come out and there's a special edition devoted to Roots. And it was the first time I had seen pretty much a majority black cast on television daily. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't remember before, there were other shows that I watched, you know, comedies like The Jeffersons and Good Times and things like this, but this was the first time where I, I can actually recall drama, you know, uh, featuring this black cast in a, real, a story that resonated and told the story of America as well. You know, and since then, I remember I was discussing with someone when I was in college, and I remember when Spike Lee's first movie came out and how, you know, we were all so excited by this. And, you know, and then to get to the point where you have what is just, I, I thought the film, if Beale Street Could Talk, was just visually beautiful. And the thing that really sticks to with you is just how loving and lovely the film is, despite its very deep, deep deep, heavy subjects. So. And those two main characters were like 20-something? They were 19? 19 and 22, if I'm remembering correctly. So, You know, as I was researching James Baldwin, uh, these kind of things popped up in the different writings. Harlem, mm -hmm. where he was born. Self-hatred. Mm -hmm. Scars of racism. New conscience of the nation on race. Homosexuality. Yes. How much of any of that penetrated with you when you were reading him in the early days? In the early days, you know, I was telling someone, you know, <laughs> I said, it, it may sound very sheltered, but I said it wasn't until I was in college. I think I read Another Country when I was about 15 or 16, and it wasn't until I was in college where I was reflecting back on it, and I was like, hmm, those characters were gay. It, you know, it didn't really resonate at that point. It was just another love story and friction and tension in the book. It didn't seemed to really resonate that these were about two men, you know. It wasn't until I was much older that that sort of registered. Uh, you know, I think race was always there, in a sense, particularly with Gotello on the Mountain, because it took place in a church, and I grew up in a black church, and so I could see all of that. And, you know, I didn't grow up in Harlem, but I grew up in a majority black neighborhood, so these were things and places that were really reflective of what I was seeing around me in a lot of ways. What so, was your neighborhood? Um, I grew up in a neighborhood called Turner Station. It's in Baltimore County, in eastern Baltimore County. And it was, I'm almost uh, probably 100% black when I was growing up. I think it's a little bit, uh, has changed since then. And it was working class. And, you know, my father worked at Bethlehem Steel, like a lot of the men did, but we had sort of a diversity of people, you know, one of the families across the street, you know, was an architect and a Blue Cross ex uh, executive and a lunch lady and a teacher and a principal. So it was a sort of a diversity. And, you know, I have extraordinarily fond memories of just the kind of neighborhood where everybody sort of looked out for you and like, my mother would put us out, and, I, you know, I wasn't going that far, but, you know, you could just go the block or ride your bike, and, you know, if you did something wrong, the neighbor would call your mom up and tell her, you know, that kind of thing. So it was a very close-knit, loving kind of neighborhood where, you know, I, it's sad to say, you know, because of the way our lives have changed now and the way I work, you know, I probably know one of my neighbors by name, 
whereas I could have gone for like 10 blocks probably and known everybody in my neighborhood, you know. How segregated was your early life and when did you have contact with white people? Um, From elementary school on um, in the sense that my neighborhood was all black. The school I went to was in a neighborhood that was majority white um, and, you know, I was post-integration so my siblings were, I remember my sister I think in 66 or 66, I remember my oldest sister talking about moving from an all-black school to the white school uh, in Dundalk where we went. Um, But for me, from kindergarten on, you know, my classes were always integrated in the sense that, you know, frequently I was one of two or three black students in an all-white class, but there was, you know, there was integration. You know, I reflect now, one of my middle school teachers recently passed away, And my sister, I was telling her about going to the funeral and seeing other teachers there, and she said, I didn't know you had all those black teachers. And I said, you know, I was very fortunate. My my elementary school, I don't remember, I personally didn't have a black teacher, but I remember our vice principal was African American. In middle school, I had several, uh, let me correct myself, actually I did have a black teacher in elementary school, I forgot, in fifth grade. Um, in middle school, I had a few more, you know, so there were people there who were, who looked like me and who were looking out for students there. My school was probably 65 to 70 percent majority white, I'm guessing, at that era, in that era, but, you know, we, we sort of grew up together, so. Here's more, more James Baldwin. This is from 1960. Now, he went to France in 48. Yes. Died in France. Yes. Lived most of his life in France. Mm-hmm. But before I go to this, yeah. what do you think of that? He left this you country. Know, well, he romanticized France for me. <laughs> so, uh, in the sense that I had grown up, you know, reading about the Harlem Renaissance and, you know, Langston Hughes and James Baldwin and Richard Wright and, you know, their travels around the world and going to France. And I remember, I have a vague recollection, and I'm going to get the quote right, and it may be in the clip about him saying that, you know, he needed to leave America because he felt like he was couldn't be himself. He was suffocating. He had to get away. And I'm sure in, in that era, I completely understand that, where you're in such a segregated society, and, you know, as even though we're sort of moving towards two separate societies again, it's not nearly as heinous as it was then for him. I'm not going to use the clip I was going to because it fits our conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to 1986. He died the next year. Mm -hmm. But uh, he spoke at the National Press Club, and James Baldwin was talking about why he moved to France. Let's watch this. I went to France in 1948 when I was quite young. I went there with $40. No French, no one-way ticket. Or in other words, I was getting out of here. I, would go, I didn't so much go to Paris as leave New York. And the reason I left New York was because I knew that one, one fine Tuesday, somebody was going to call me nigger just once too often, just once too often, and somebody was going to die, and I didn't care which one of us it was. So I split. I didn't know what was going to happen to me in Paris, but I knew what was going to happen to me here. Did you ever feel this way? Not that I wanted to leave America, but... You know, in looking at that, it made me think of my father and my parents. You know, they were part of the Great Migration. You know, they left South Carolina in the late 50s. And recently, I was talking to an older cousin of mine who said, you know, my grandfather was sort of the one who pushed my father to leave. Uh, His older brother had come, didn't like it. 
his sister, one of his sisters, had moved to New York and then came back. And my grandfather, who died, I think, when I was an infant or so, according to my cousins, sort of told my father, you have to leave here. There's nothing here for you in this small town in South Carolina. And I, my father, who was, you know, remarkably, a, a remarkable gentleman, uh, I remember him telling me really heinous tales without any sort of hint of anger. Uh, he was sort of always proud at how far African Americans had come in this country. Uh, but knowing what he endured in the South, I suspect he sort of felt a lot like that Baldwin did, that he had to leave South Carolina and come north to seek something better uh, for his own safety, for his children, et cetera. Uh, you know, I've never felt the need to flee America other than for, you know, vacations and just to see the, the world. Vacation to yes. Have you been to Paris? <laughs> yes, I've been actually been a couple of times. Um, and I, it's funny, one, I, one trip I wanted to do this tour to see where Baldwin lived, and I never got a chance to do it. And after I wrote the piece, I got a very lovely note from a gentleman who had written a piece for The New Yorker, I think, back in the 80s, just before Baldwin died. He spent some time with Baldwin at his house in New York, I mean, in, in Paris, and he was describing it to me, and, and he sent me the link to the, uh, to the it was New York Book of Review, that's what it was. And, you know, he said, if you're ever in Paris, and I said, be careful, you know, <laughs> show up on your doorstep there. Uh, but I have... You know, as I tell people, I feel very strongly that I am America. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, this is a nation of people from all around the world who came here to bring, whether they came here willingly or unwillingly, but who created this country. And I frequently reflect on Langston Hughes' poem, you know, I too sing America, and that's how I feel very strongly about that. I can't imagine fleeing but one never says no, <laughs> never. So you know. So the one of the reasons that I, you know when I read your column it was interesting is this whole idea of, of books and the printed word. Yes. Who got you interested? You know, I I've always read. You know, that's the. I just like I don't remember a time not reading. Uh, I remember my Dr. Seuss alphabet book. Uh, you know, I think part of it was. My parents didn't have the same opportunities for education that I did. My father had to quit school when he was in the sixth grade to go to work. My mother, you know, she managed to get, th she was got through high school, but, you know, she soon married my father when she was 19. So they didn't have the same opportunities for higher education, but they were always avid readers in the sense that my mother read the newspaper from cover to cover every day. And, you know, growing up, we got three newspapers in the household. I remember my father going off to work at Bestiel with like a paperback in his back pocket or something as he was catching the bus. And he was a huge proponent of encyclopedias. So he always made sure we had encyclopedias in the house. And, you know, his whole thing was I could not say I was bored. You know, he was like, I bought you a set of encyclopedias. Have you read them all? Uh, and because my siblings were in college, you know, I was grabbing their books when they weren't looking and when they moved out of the house, well, I was about 10, and so their books were there, and I would frequently just go and grab them. And as I said, we had this public library that was, you know, in my mind, it was huge, and you know, <laughs> I realize now it was probably very small, but it was about maybe three blocks from my household. And I spent a lot of time just going there. I think pretty much every day when I was in elementary school, just getting off the bus and going straight to the library and... We had a wonderful librarian, Mrs. Hunt, who would sometimes just have books waiting for me, or I would just go through and pull things off. So I don't remember a time not reading. 
Here is James Baldwin in 1968, as I was starting earlier, with uh, Yale professor Paul Weiss, and they're discussing, arguing. <laughs> All this emphasis upon black men and white does emphasize something which is here, but it emphasizes it or perhaps exaggerates it, and therefore makes us for, uh, put people together in groups which they ought not to be in. I have more in common with a, a black scholar than I have with a white man who is against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. I ended up in Paris on the streets of Paris with $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn up all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. Reaction? <laughs> I think um, it's a nice sort of dream that we cannot see, you know, people want to talk about a colorblind society, but I don't think it's a reality. I think we've proven that. I think that we all make assumptions based on color and gender and sexuality and all of those things and I think that's what Baldwin was alluding to it's like you know uh, you know it doesn't matter whether or not I have 16 degrees or I am you know undereducated the first thing someone sees about me is that I'm a black woman and they're going to make an assumption based on whatever stereotypes they've grown up with whether those stereotypes are real or not real so it doesn't matter you know whether, you know, he says he might have more in common with an author. Yes, I have more in common with an author, but if I'm, you know, in an area of this country where there aren't a lot of black people, they're going to see me first and foremost as a black woman and not as a journalist of the Washington Post, and it won't matter one way or the other. What's so. an awkward moment you can remember in your life where you said, mm, this, the only thing they're looking at right now is my skin is black? Um I will. It's more of the sense that you know there were, you know there are multiple episodes in the sense that I can remember being in school in both uh, high school and college, and you know if I got an A and someone say, oh, <laughs> it's like as if there was a surprise or a shock there, or you know this sort of microaggressions of you speak so well, you know as if I wouldn't, you know, and I recall. I, you know, I always tell people, I recall an incident of when I was in college. I took a women's studies class, and there was a young uh, black woman in the class with me. I think we were probably the only two black women in the class. And she grew up in Rhode Island, not around a lot of black people. And she really, you know, I, I always used to say I was like her educator to the black world <laughs> in one sense. And she was sitting next to a woman who had returned to college. She was an older woman, older white woman. And the woman was asking her where she grew up and what she was majoring in, and she was pre-med at the time. And the woman said to her, and granted, this was the late 80s now, and the woman said to her, you know, where did you learn to speak English? You know? <laughs> She's like, I'm from Rhode Island, you know? <laughs> and I just looked at her, and I was like, nobody's, you know, welcome to my world. <laughs> you know, it's like, you sound shocked and surprised by that. I said, 
most people are shocked and surprised whenever, you know, I said, I can't tell you the number of times that I, you know, as a young reporter, that I would call someone on the phone, and they did not know I was black often, and I would show up at their house, and they would be like, hmm, you know, or people were like, well, how'd you get that job, you know? And so, you know, there were many of those instances throughout my life where, you know, you tend to brush them off, uh, ignore them until they can't be ignored, and deal with them. Where did you get your university education? I went to the University of Maryland in College Park. I'm a proud Terrapin. <laughs> what, did you, what did you study? I studied journalism. So um, I, you know, had fallen in love with the idea of being a writer. And as I tell people, I wanted to be James Baldwin, and I quickly realized I didn't have that talent. <laughs> and so I started working, you know, for my high school newspaper, and I was very fortunate. The Baltimore Sun had a minority scholarship program, and I started working at this Baltimore Sun two days after high school, opening mail, answering phones, and worked my way up through internships, and have worked at a number of papers since then, so. Why do you say you can't write like James Bowman? Oh, I don't, I think there are very few people who can write with that kind of eloquence and passion and insight. You know, I'd like to think I could, you know, I dream of someday being able to, but I think there's only one James Baldwin. Where would you put him in and all the people you've read in your Ooh. lifetime, I mean, is he is he up there at the top? He's up, he's up there at the top. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, I, it's like choosing your favorite child in a sense. You know, I don't know that I could choose a favorite author because they each mean something different to me and at different points of my life. You know, I mean, Toni Morrison is a goddess <laughs> in my estimation. I'm a huge Margaret Atwood fan. Uh I love the poetry of Langston Hughes, you know, so I don't know that I could choose just one, but Baldwin was the one who sparked my love. Can you feel a difference when you're right when you're reading a white author versus a black author? Hmm, that's a that's a very challenging question. Um I I feel the difference when I'm reading someone. I think I feel more the difference in socioeconomic, if, if that's understandable. Uh, for instance, I think there's some insight when I'm reading Southern writers as opposed to those in the North, um, particularly those who are dealing with uh, more rural areas and places that are more working class. I think I can pick them out when they're very genuine. Um, I do think there's a difference, and maybe that's just cultural and what I'm seeing. I can remember when Angelus Ashes came out, and I was reading it with, I was living in New York at the time, and I was reading it with my book club there, and it was majority white, and, you know, people were sort of shocked by that kind of poverty, and I kept thinking, this is the same thing my ancestors dealt with for, you know, this is what, I remember my father talking about putting the Sears catalog on the wall to keep the air out, you know, and getting an orange and a sweet potato for Christmas, you know. That wasn't foreign to me, so I think there's some cultural differences there, so. Here's James Baldwin. Uh, on the way white people view black people and in turn the world, this was uh, again from the press club speech, right? It wasn't that far away from when he died. What we call the white American has created only the nigger he wants to see. The reason that's important and terrifying and corrupts the youth from here is because when this same white man looks 
around the world, he sees only the nigger he wants to see. And that is mortally dangerous for the future of this country, for our present fortunes. The world is full of all kinds of people who live quite beyond the confines of the American imagination and who have nothing whatever to do with the guilt-ridden vision of the world which controls so much of our life and our thinking and which paralyzes very nearly our moral sense. Hmm. Thoughts. I, I think he's true. I mean, I think the rest of the world sees black stereotypes based on what we've presented. Uh, I think, I remember years ago reading a story about Cubans in Miami and an Afro-Cuban saying he didn't realize he was black until he came to the United States. Now, I've been to Cuba. I don't think that's necessarily 100% true in that I do think in talking to some Cubans when I was there, you know, they do see color and there is a sort of hierarchy there. But I do think people base their assumptions based on the stereotypes that America has created. Uh, I think that's why there's this whole fight in some certain places over, you know, blackface and, you know, you have the Sambo dolls that are very prominent in certain cultures and stereotypes. You know, they had an... I, some, somewhere in Asia, I'm not... I can't recall exactly where, but they had a commercial where someone went, to, you know, a black person went into a um, washing machine and they came out, you know, with their skin clear, you know, they replaced, I think, with an Asian person or something, you know. And I think, you know, those that didn't come in a vacuum. That became that came because of stereotypes that we have perpetuated for centuries in America. So, What he said there was 30 years ago, and he, he used the N-word. Mm-hmm. However... Uh, back in 2016, they came out with a documentary about his life. And in this case, they said, I am not your Negro. Yes. What's... Talk about the N-word versus Negro and and the sensitivity and blacks using it and whites not being able to use it. You know, it's one of those things. It's not a word that I use, um, and and I will tell you why. My father used to tell this story, and it used to anger me whenever he told it. And he would say, you know, he talked about being a young black man in South Carolina. This would have been probably in the 40s or or so. It was before he married my mother. They got married in 1949. And he talked about, you know, hitchhiking from town to town to get work. You know, he used to paint and do other small jobs. And someone picked him up and was gracious enough to let him sit in the front of the truck with them. And, but he addressed him with the N-word the entire time. And he said, tell me about your life, you know, and this is how, you know, you know, and he kept saying it over and over again, you know, and that's how he referred to my father, you know, and I was just, like, horrified by this. So I could never, you know, see using the word. I understand the argument about reclaiming it, but, you know, as I said, I come from people who came from the Deep South, who were terrorized by the word, so it's not a word I would use. Uh, it's not a word I like to hear use. I understand the argument for reclaiming it, and I'm not going to, you know, dispute if someone wants to do that. But that's not my worldview of it because I know how it was used to terrorize people. 
Here is the trailer from the movie, the documentary, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sure is available if you want to watch. Yes. It's from 2016. It was directed by Raoul Peck. I am not your Negro. If any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigger so there won't be any more like him. The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. It is not a pretty story. Most of the white Americans I've ever encountered surely have nothing whatever against Negroes. That's really not the question. Really kind of apathy and ignorance. You don't know what's happening on the other side of the world because you don't want to know. In America, I was free only in battle, never free to rest. We need to take action, any kind of action, by any means necessary. They needed us to pick the cotton, and now they don't need us anymore. Now they don't need us, they're going to kill us all off. What do you think James Baldwin would think if he were around today? Oh, <laughs> there are many people wishing that he was around to sort of give his sort of take on, you know, how it seems that we've sort of devolved in a sense. You know, we seem to have been moving forward, but I think he would have chastised us for believing that we were moving forward. You know, there was a lot of talk when Obama was, you know, uh, elected that we were in sort of a post-racial world at the time, and I think a lot of people sort of turned their nose up at that, and I think Baldwin would have been the first one to say, hey, wait a second, you know, this is this means absolutely nothing, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we still have a lot of people who are judging folks based on the color of their skin who still uh, are not comfortable with a, a truly equal society, uh, and I think he would be the first person to call us all out for our hypocrisy and thinking that we had made, not ignoring the strides we had made, but thinking that we had sort of solved something that is really almost impossible to solve at this point. So, What is it, in your opinion, about the color black? And as you all know, in the black race, there are all different shades of yes. colors, and there is prejudice... Yes. Within the black race, among people who are very dark versus very light. What's that all about? Oh, you know, I mean, I think that begins with um, they were pitted against each other. You know, I think um, and I hope that there has been an evolution. And I think there has been. Um, we're at a point in society where folks realize that it doesn't matter so much the how much melanin you have you know that you have any uh can make you a target can make you the focus of racism and prejudice and discrimination i think that that stems from the fact that they were pitted against each other and told you know everything from the beginning of time and it's not just in america you see it in india you see it in asia you see it in south america where, you know, they're trying to ban bleaching creams, they were told that to be fair skin and to have straight hair and all of those things, that was the standard of beauty. That's around the world. That's not simply within the black race. That's around the world with every sort of culture where they have been told, this is what is beautiful, and everything that is not like that is not beautiful. We can come back to James Bowen, but I want to divert just for a moment because you've been involved in something that got an award on the um, Washington Post website. 
called uh, The Four Days in 1968, and we'll show something, uh, some of this on the screen. What, what is this? So last year in 1968, this was the 50th anniversary of the um, rioting and up, ri the uprisings that took place in D.C. and around the country uh, following the assassination of Martin Luther King. And we wanted to embark on a project to sort of tell the story, uh, you know, behind sort of the writing, to show just sort of the chaos that erupted and the misinformation that was coming about uh, during the rioting there, and to explain, you know, why the rioting happened. And one of the things that we found out when we first started to look into this was the Post had done a remarkable job over the 50 years of sort of marking the anniversary every 10 years or so. They wrote a book right after the rioting occurred. You know, we did anniversaries on the 10th, the 20th, the 25th, the 30th, 40th, and we had interviewed a number of people. And so one of the things that we really wanted to do this year, since it was the 50th anniversary, and recognizing that D.C. is a totally different place than it was then. You know, it was majority black then, you know. And it is now, you know, just about split evenly, you know. And there are a lot of people who live in the U Street corridor where some of the rioting happened who, A, weren't born and know nothing of the history there. And we wanted to explain to people, this place that you're walking by now, this is what happened and this is why it happened. Uh, and so we were very fortunate in that when we started this project, we were contacted by a professor, Brandeis Dan Kreider, whose students had been had FOIA'd a lot of the information that we were FOIAing, and they had documented all of the places where they received calls. Now, not all of those calls were accurate. A lot of it was just, as you know, in the midst of a big news event, people call in and they say, there's a gunman here and there's a gunman there, and most of it was not true. But it showed the chaos that was occurring at that time and, you know, what led to that and how it went across the entire city. When I came to town, there were 800,000 people in the district. It slid all the way down to 550. Yes. It's now back up about 700,000. Yes. But it's changed. Yes. It's much younger. It's much whiter uh, uh, and wealthier for a certain segment of the population. Uh, other folks have been pushed back, pushed aside and pushed out because of the rising costs, and there's a tremendous amount of economic inequality. And one of the things we wanted to show is that the disparities that existed in 1968 exist today. There's still a huge gulf in the district in terms of economic disparity. And it's sort of, you know, one of the questions I had asked when we first started this, like, was could that rioting happen again? Because the same sort of problems that existed in 68 exist now. And there's a tremendous amount of frustration among the people who have lived here for generations. And all of a sudden, they can't afford the home that their parents or grandparents owned. Uh, and they're being pushed out and pushed away, you know. And I remember a few years ago, we did a story about a woman. She had a hair salon on Rhode Island Avenue, and she put up a sign as she was closing, forced out because of gentrification, you know. There's a lot of tension. And I said, I don't think that that same kind of rioting could occur again, but I know that the underlying tension still exists. So. Within that, and people can get on yes, line and, and on Washington Post and see this. But within there is a going around just a little clip. Clint Hill, the famous yes. uh, Secret Service agent, talks in your presentation about what it was like with uh, Lyndon Johnson back during the '68 riots. Yeah.
And so the president then said, well, look, I want to see how much damage the rioters have done in the city of Washington. And the best place to do that's from the air. And so we arranged for him to fly on General Westmoreland's helicopter over the city. I was on the helicopter with him, and it was uh, quite a sight to behold. It was, just, it was unbelievable that the major portion of the city had actually burned. And uh, it's something I'll never forget. As you know, this happened after Martin Luther King mm -hmm. was assassinated. Did, did this work in any way, the rioting and the looting? Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, I tell people, often when riots occur, people say, why would they do this to their own neighborhood? And I always tell people, it's not their own neighborhood. <laughs> you know, it's like they don't have any ownership of it because they're in an, an oppressed situation. You know, it's like I'm not justifying the burning or looting or anything like that, but I understand the frustration. It's like you're working, you know, and, and you look at a, t a point at, at that time where there were stores that... You know, black people couldn't go in, or if they could go in, they couldn't try on clothes, and they were being charged higher prices in certain neighborhoods for certain goods and things of that nature, and frustration built up. And it's, you know, I tell people, they did not feel ownership because they were being displaced even then and there. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I don't know that it worked in terms of, you know, if you're looking at it in that sense, except that it brought attention to the plight of the inner cities, and you got the reports that came out and showed just how unequal the school systems were, just how, you know, severe the housing crisis was, you know, what kind of conditions people were living in. It brought attention to just how impoverished in both physical and emotional levels that people were living in. So, What are the different organizations that you work for? You, you said you worked for yeah, the Baltimore I, Sun. I worked for the Baltimore Evening Sun. I then worked for Gannett Newspapers up in Westchester County, New York, and I worked for Newsday on Long Island, so before I came to the Post. How did you get your job at the Post? Uh, it, it was interesting. I was at, in, at Newsday in the Washington Bureau by this point, and they were consolidating the Washington office, and I figured, you know, I'll have a job back in New York, but I knew that there wasn't going to be a role for me in Washington, and I was my father had passed away by then. My mother was getting older, and I was like, I'm not sure I want to go back to New York at this stage. And I truly thought I, this, I might leave journalism because I wasn't sure that there was going to be a role here. And everyone in my office was calling the post except me, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I got a call from them, and they said, you know, would you come in for an interview? And I said, sure, you know. And I was just actually kind of surprised by it. And, you know, it was one of the, you know, one of those things where I was sort of at a crossroads in my life. I had just come off, the, I think it was a 2004 election, and I was kind of burned out, and I thought, oh, do I really want to do this? But it's like, it's the Washington Post. You don't say no to them. And so it's been, it's been a great ride. Back to James Baldwin a little bit. Uh, this is another clip from uh, his press club appearance. We've used a lot of that, but that's the latest thing that we have, because that was in 1986, mm -hmm. and he died December the first, one year later, yeah. December the 1st, 1987. Here he is talking about the myths that white people have about themselves. Yeah. The truth about this country is buried in the myths that white people have about themselves. And, they have, and these myths have to be excavated and can only be excavated by white people. Or, in other words, I may know this history, the history of this country better than whatever teacher is trying to teach my child. 
because it's in my interest to understand it in order to be liberated from it. Most white Americans cling to the idea of, the, of being white and, you know, because they don't want to find out what else, what else they might be. But if I know that I have black and white ancestors, so do you, and no one in this country can prove they're white, no one would dare to try to prove that. And I'm not trying to glorify black people or denigrate white people. I'm trying to point out that we are, whether we like it or not, connected, and that a connection should be our triumph and our glory instead of our shame. I think he's accurate there. I think that, and on a whole other level, uh, you know, I was having a discussion with someone and that being considered, you know, the other in this country, whether it's Hispanic or Asian or black, you know, we're expected to know all of American history, including our own. Uh, whereas to be white, you know, it's just assumed that that's white history in, this, in the sense that, you know, it's a revolution, but it doesn't include the role of African Americans there. And I think that's sort of the myth that we all sort of were created with. You know, I only am half joking when I tell people there's a sense of me that, you know, I wish there, you know, I wish Black History Month was something that we just looked at as American history, since it's part of America, <laughs> you know, since the founding of America. Uh, you know, I look back on my own education and that, you know, I never learned about Hispanics or the role of the Chinese or Japanese in the founding of, you know, the creation of this country, you know. And it does a disservice to everyone to sort of, you know, we get a week here for Hispanic or Hispanic Heritage Month, I think, actually has now a whole month, and Asian American, you know, but it's like, I did not have that. And it's, you know, it's a universal thing to want to know your place in the world. And I think because the dominant culture is always defaulted to sort of white America, everything else is sort of marginalized without the full context of the role that it took to create the United States of America. Those many years ago when you're on your way to meet James Baldwin and mm -hmm. you didn't get there because of snow and mm -hmm. there were only six or seven people there, yeah. if you had gotten there, what would you what would you have wanted to ask him? Oh, I you know, I don't know that I would have had the confidence to ask him every anything because I was so in awe of him, you know. But I think I would have wanted to know, you know, his sort of whole process and what his what his actual dream was in writing these books. What did he hope to accomplish? Was it simply to tell the story of that particular story, or was there something much larger that he was trying to do in illustrating these lives? So I think, had I had the confidence then, and I'm not sure I would have, that's what I would want to know. You know, what was his ultimate goal in writing these stories? Was it, as I think it is, to reflect the beauty and the, and the levels and the layers of lives of African Americans and their, you know, their role in the world, that's what I would like to think. So, I, I don't want to ramble on, but I've got the first uh, book, 1953, Go Tell It to the, to the Mountain. Mm -hmm. And then there's Giovanni's Room, 56. Mm -hmm. 55 is Notes of a Native Son. 61, Nobody Knows My Name. Another Country, as you mentioned, The Fire Next Time in 63, mm -hmm. Blues for Mr. Charlie, and Mr. Charlie was the black term okay. for white men, yes. Going to Meet the Man mm -hmm. in 65, 68, Tell Me 
how long the train's been gone. Have you yeah. read all this? Yes, yeah. I think I've read everything except um, Blues from Mr. Charlie. So. If Beale Street could talk was 74, just above my head, mm -hmm. 1979, and the price of the ticket was 1985. Mm -hmm. uh, which one of those books Ooh. <laughs> would you want somebody who says, I want to find out about James Baldwin? Hmm. Which one would you recommend? I mean, I know that they can yeah. read all of them. They but. can read all of them. I think his essays. You know, I'm. You know, I personally love the novels, but I think his essays are so challenging to the story of America that I think that that's the perfect place to start with. I think you know, you know, they started off as sort of a letter to his nephew, you know, but I think those are where you start with James Baldwin. Has America given him the kind of attention? in memory that they should? I think the Raoul Peck movie, I Am Not Your Negro, was a really great way to start. I loved it. I loved the documentary. I think that Barry Jenkins turning If Beale Street could talk, it's such, as I said, it's just visually a beautiful film. I'm hoping it brings more attention. One of the things I've been really pleasantly surprised with is since I wrote that piece, which, you know, I just sort of did it offhand as a love, my own personal love letter and didn't think much of it, to be honest with you, is the number of people who have contacted me to tell me about reading Baldwin themselves and what it meant to them. So I am hoping this sparks a resurgence and that, you know, more of his work is, becomes more widely known. So if somebody wants to reach you the same way they would online, What's the best way to find you at the post? I am Monica.Norton at washpost.com. Monica Norton wrote a piece back in December about James Baldwin, If Beale Street Could Talk, when I was 13, how you devoured that book. And we appreciate very much you talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. Next Sunday on Q&A, West Point English professor Elizabeth Samet on her annotated edition of the memoirs of Ulysses Grant. That's Q&A next Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific Time on C-SPAN. C-SPAN's 